0: You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, ChristianHumanist.org. Cultural critics of a certain persuasion will sometimes suggest that the Bible is a force to conserve what is most stable in human society, to call us back from our radical delusions and into a life that deserves not critique so much as preservation. Not so Walter Brueggemann. In his famous 1978 book, The Prophetic Imagination, Brueggemann introduced Bible students to a text that disrupts and confronts, that imagines a whole creation crying out for justice and mercy. And in his 2014 book, Ice Axes for Frozen Seas, Brueggemann once more returns to the Bible as a collection of texts that breaks up frozen ideas, making us see what we had ignored and to cry out when despair silences our cries. He's here today to talk about that book, and Christian Humanist Profile's listeners are in for a treat. Thank you for coming on the show, Dr. Brueggemann.
1: I'm delighted to get to talk with you. Thanks.
0: Very good. Well, one of the book's earlier chapters makes the claim that hope, which is a a big word not only in theology but politics these days, is not mainly a virtue for silent and private moments of despair, but it has to be re-performed out loud and in public if it is to remain hope. As a teacher of the church, what would the Bible, and especially the Psalms, teach us about hope that we have a tendency to forget in the 21st century?
1: Well, the Bible uh, obviously operates um, with an assumption that uh, God is a, a major player in the life of creation and uh, assumes that um, God has an intention of, um, of uh, generating uh, new futures and uh, believes that uh, God has made promises that God will keep, and that those promises uh, add up to uh, righteousness, justice, mercy, compassion, faithfulness, shalom, the kind of a recurring vocabulary of fidelity, uh, so that um, uh, from the biblical perspective, uh, God's intention for the future uh, sort of stands as an alternative to and a critique of uh, present power arrangements that are obviously organized against justice and righteousness and mercy and compassion uh, one one can of course uh, extract those uh, resolves uh, about the future from the character of God but obviously the Bible uh, doesn't want to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, the, the Bible is, uh, and the book of Psalms, are very honest about uh, uh, the present circumstance, which is uh, a chaotic, unjust mess, uh, but it believes that, uh, as uh, Martin Luther King said, that the uh, arc of justice and mercy is uh, very long, Mm -hmm. And in the long run, um, that will prevail.
0: Now, as far as a, a public performance, I mean, that's the part that really struck me when I was reading this. I mean, do you see this in the 21st century as something that gets played out in churches alongside, for instance, an Occupy Wall Street movement or a Ferguson protest or more recent protests in Cleveland and New York? Or how do you imagine the relationships between liturgical hope and Sort of a, a street political hope
1: well I think uh, I think what the church does uh, at its best when it is at its best, I think it keeps the vocabulary alive mm-hmm. uh, and i I think that that hope uh, gets performed in the life of the church, but I think that so much of the church is narcoticized uh, that when we uh, use this uh, incredible vocabulary of god's impossible future, um, we've sort of uh, domesticated it, and we we do not uh, pay much attention to the the freight that these words really carry. So I think it's all there in the life of the Church, uh, but um, so much of the institutional Church, of course, has uh, accommodated itself uh, to the way the world is that uh, all of that gets uh, toned down and the edge gets shaved off. But I think that in the long run, um, probably one wouldn't have... Uh, these uh, public protest movements, were it not for the long-term uh, maintenance and sustenance of the church, mm-hmm. there's no doubt in uh, the black community, as in Ferguson, for example, there is no doubt that the the, the black church uh, really uh, nourishes that kind of vocabulary and that kind of hope uh, that has to equip people to withstand uh, the incredible force of despair. Uh, that is all around black people, and uh, I suppose that the uh, the uh, connection is not as uh, immediate and direct for uh, the uh, Wall Street 99% people. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think I think that connection is there. I don't think that you can just uh, go out and invent a vocabulary of hope. I think it has to be very uh, deeply rooted. And uh, obviously, as a theologian, I think it finally has to be rooted in the character of God.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: so I I think you can't... Uh, uh, I, I wish the church uh, did much better than it does, but I don't think uh, even the way it is, I don't think it ought to be discounted.
0: Right. Well, one of the things about your work generally, and this book in particular, that I especially appreciate is that you do not give up on the established institutions, even when uh, they seem to be on narcotics, as you just said. And one of the moves that I, I saw highlighted in Ice Axes that I haven't seen in your other books, uh, and I might be wrong, so tell me if I am, is that the prophetic text, or the pro- prophetic task, pardon me, doesn't end with suspicion of Zion, but has to practice a retrieval of Zion theologically. What do you think that that kind of retrieval would look like in the moment that we're experiencing right now?
1: Well, let me say first of all that I I think that too much of the church has has viewed prophetic ministry as just uh, scolding and reprimanding people, mm-hmm. when in fact uh, all of the prophetic books in the Old Testament finally end up on a promissory note. Um, so I think uh, 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 quite practically the the, the reconstruction of uh, of uh, social institutions. Uh, consists in um, uh, a a judiciary and a press and schools, all of which are committed uh, to the human project of uh, equity and justice. And uh, I think that uh, that requires uh, a heavy critique of the way those institutions are now and to some extent a dismantling of those institutions uh, the way they are now uh but in the long run you can't live without uh, social institutions mm-hmm. and uh, what we need is to uh is to recover uh the best vision of uh what it would mean to have a judiciary that's committed to justice and what it would mean to uh, have uh, schools that are committed to transformative education and on and on and on like that so i think that the uh, cipher uh, in the old testament the cipher of uh Old Zion that failed and New Zion uh, that is coming uh, is uh, kind of a, a poetic way of speaking about uh, all social institutions uh, when they have failed and when they are uh, when they are capable of renewal. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh,
1: and um, I think uh, uh, the prophetic tradition does not give up on uh, that capacity for renewal. When when you give up on the capacity for renewal renewal in the Bible, then you move from the prophetic to the apocalyptic, and uh, that's a that's a very different matter. But mm-hmm. if one stays with the prophetic, uh, then I believe uh, uh, there, the, the tradition believes that institutions can indeed be transformed.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I want you to, uh, to let you keep going in that direction of talking about poetry a little bit because one of my favorite chapters in this book in particular draws a distinction between what you call the rhetoric of the poem and the rhetoric of the memo in the ways that we talk about God what's at stake when we face the urge to turn our poems into memos and what do we stand to gain if we let our god poems be poetic yeah
1: well i think a uh, uh, memo is a is a uh, uh, a rhetoric of uh, of control and certitude uh, so a good memo should not have any ambiguities in it. Uh, mm-hmm. It's uh, directive and, and so on. And I think uh, very much of the theological tradition has been cast as though it were a memo. But when you when you uh, transpose that into the rhetoric of poetry, uh, poetry wants to emancipate our imagi- emancip- wants to emancipate our imagination uh, so that we can um, conjure impossibilities. Uh, that has never been entertained before. Uh, I think uh, uh, in the New testament the uh, uh, a primary example of that kind of uh, poetic imagination is in Jesus' parables uh, in which he uh, he just blows our socks off with uh, with the ways in which he uh, uses metaphor and image uh, to talk about the coming kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, if you flatten that out, Uh, then the the kingdom of God is a a dreadful phrase. But, of course, uh, that's not what he did with it. And uh, I I think uh, there's a great deal at stake in uh, in recognizing that uh, biblical faith uh, is largely cast in uh, poetic imagery. If you think of the prophets or the Psalms uh, or the Proverbs, almost any of it is that. And I suspect that the great creeds of the Church uh, were originally uh, liturgical poetry, and uh, what happened then is that they uh, fell into the hands of the memo writers, and uh, you began to parse every little image and uh, and figure out exactly what it must mean, which is which is not what the framers of of, of the tradition had in mind, I think, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I and I think uh, that, that quite practically we live in a society that uh, wants to reduce everything to technological control and uh, mm-hmm. so that uh, when uh, when uh, schools run out of money the first thing they do is to cut the arts programs because the arts programs are uh, thought to be uh, just uh, an extra that we can get along without. Well, no society can finally get along without artists and poets and uh, people that uh, keep opening out social possibility for us. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that the biblical tradition um, does that all the time.
0: Right. Yeah. Although, to cite you to yourself here, one of the things that you do nicely in that chapter is to say that the memo-writing impulse is not something that's alien to the biblical text itself. And this is the the plurality in the Bible that, when I teach prophetic imagination, and I teach it every fall to my own seniors, uh, you know, when they encounter that possibility that the bible is in tension with itself at points it, it's probably what's most shocking about your work to my own students but say a little bit about the memo writing impulse for instance i mean in the solomonic narrative
1: yeah in the, in the solomonic narrative or in the uh, or in the uh, priestly uh, traditions in leviticus and uh, numbers and all that uh, mm-hmm. i i think uh, those those traditions uh, Represent voices that uh, really wanted to settle things and establish a status quo that was probably in their favor, uh, and obviously the, the uh, solomonic uh, uh, measurements of the temple and all that kind of stuff are trying to uh, box God's holiness in, uh, mm-hmm. so you can uh, you can try to reduce everything to uh, arithmetic formula. Uh, and uh i think that uh when you think about the uh the uh, prophets uh speaking out uh in the presence of the kings uh that's a perfect dramatic example of uh, poetry calling into question uh the world of manning's memos mm-hmm. uh, so i think that that uh, contest uh keeps being reperformed and indeed in the new testament uh, uh, when you uh, have the uh, narrative of Jesus before Pilate on trial, uh, Pilate is obviously a memo man, and mm-hmm. he doesn't understand what the hell Jesus is talking about because <laughs> Jesus is speaking in all kinds of uh, imagery and uh, and metaphor. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, rolling along with that question of rhetoric, you claim that both right-wing and left-wing interpreters of the Bible fall too often to the temptation to reduce the particular and dialogic character of the Bible to exactly those systems of religious thought. But the reason for that, you write, is that they are trying to appeal to a sort of universal reason that society at large can apprehend. Now, once again, set that practice of Bible reading next to the possibility of crying out with the Bible and tell us what spiritual goods can come from Leaving the Bible messy and allowing room for those impossibilities, what do we gain intellectually when we do that?
1: well I, I think the the gain is that, that it um, it comes into contact with the way we live our lives because we live our lives in complex pluralistic, messy ways
2: mm-hmm. and
1: uh, if we if we try to deny that element to uh, the scripture tradition. Uh, then what we do is to, we remove the tradition from, from lived realities. So what is the, the first thing that is gained uh, is uh, an honesty about how it really is. The second thing that is gained is that the processing of the particular uh, really produces energy. Mm. Uh, so a particular image, a particular cry a particular doxology, anything that is particular has a chance of opening our lives for us. And the more you move the particular to the universal, uh, uh, the more we diminish uh, the, the capacity to have energy arise from the process uh, until you finally wind up with uh, uh, universals that I think for the most part have very little generative capacity at all. Mm-hmm. I, I think a, a, a case in point is uh, Joseph Campbell's uh, whole uh, reductionism of saying all religions are the same and they're all about pilgrimage of the hero and so on and so on. Well, good luck with that.
2: Uh, <laughs>
1: obviously, that's not how that's not how uh, particular traditions work. And one of, one of the problems in in uh, scripture interpretation is too much of the time uh... we try to read a text to arrive at the conclusion of the text and what's interesting about the text is not its conclusion what's interesting about the text is its process and and to uh, to tag along in the process of the text is what has transformative value so the more you move out of uh... the particularity of the process into into uh, generalizing conclusions uh, I think the more you move away from, uh, from anything transformative-hmm
0: and and honestly like I said I mean that's probably been the aspect of your work over the 15 years I've been reading your book that's most influenced my own Bible reading is to preserve that inherent plurality in the biblical witness in other words to allow a part of the Bible that speaks at this moment, to speak to this moment without forcing it to speak to every moment.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But we have a great uh, we have a great lust for uh, uh, generalization and wanting everything to apply everywhere all the time, and we'll, which of course it doesn't, and it cannot. So. Yeah. Right.
0: Right. And so, one of those places where the Bible speaks differently in different moments is on the question of empire. Uh, when the Bible speaks about politics empire is always at its center, but its response is not always the same. In your chapter on empire, you bring the reader's eye over and over to the terms accumulation and monopoly. So when the Bible gets political in this register, what work do Sabbath and abundance as theological gifts do for the imagination of the faithful?
1: Well, I, th- I think that uh, uh, Sabbath is a uh, is a mighty interruption uh, to the world of accumulation and monopoly. Uh, and I think uh, the 24 uh, 7 uh, life that uh, many of us are trying to live now uh, is all in the interest of, of, of uh, control and management and, uh, and monopoly because we, we've not done a yet, enough yet. We don't have enough yet. We haven't been enough yet. And so it's, it's all an appeal uh, to our defect and our scarcity. And the Sabbath is uh, a break in that that says uh, enough already, Uh, and uh, we don't have to uh, hustle our lives away and fatigue uh, about this. So I think uh, it's a huge uh, uh, Sabbath, and the abundance that it uh, operates with uh, is a huge uh, uh, countercultural critique in our society. Uh, as, I, as I think it was in, in the ancient world, uh, obviously the, the, uh, the paradigm uh, for Sabbath in the Old Testament is uh, uh, the brickyards of Pharaoh uh, in the book of Exodus, in which no one ever got a Sabbath. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, Sabbath is uh, the capacity to uh, to stop that and said uh, our life does not consist in making more bricks, and uh, we're not going to do it today. Mm-hmm. Uh, Which is uh, so I I have come to think that the the uh, commandment on the Sabbath is the most uh, difficult and the most demanding of all of the commandments, Um, and and you can tell that if you if you try to talk to people uh, about that it it creates kind of uh, dismay uh, among uh, busy productive generative people. Mm-hmm. To say, you just need to stop that
0: now. <laughs> right, right. And, I mean, it, it seems to be rooted in that anxiety that the world won't be able to go on without my contribution.
1: Exactly, exactly. You know, it,
0: it, it's yeah. not that divine abundance that is, you know, enough and more than enough, but it is something that is lacking. It's scarce, and therefore we have to keep working and never stop lest the world run us over.
1: That's exactly right. Yep, yep. yep. So... Yeah. Well,
0: what's fascinating about this is this, you know, constant connection of the political with the theological, and and one of the places where I I think that you know the conversation is ongoing. It has been for at least a couple generations, but it deserves to keep going some more. Is with regards to the conquest story in Joshua and elsewhere. Now, these critiques that you marshal in this book are not new ones. Even as an undergraduate, I encountered the charge that. You know, American manifest destiny had its roots in the sort of cowboys and Canaanites story of the Old Testament. Yep. Yet you maintain that Deuteronomy, in particular, and this is the move that I found fascinating, might have some strong medicine precisely for folks who think of themselves as history's people or even as God's people. In what ways does Deuteronomy promise to be a rhetorical check on the excesses of American hubris?
1: Well, that, that whole tradition of, of, uh, from Mount Sinai to the Book of Deuteronomy um, really uh, says that the status of chosenness uh, and the holding of the promised land and being exceptional and all that, it's all conditional. It's all dependent upon uh, keeping the Torah, and uh, in the Book of Deuteronomy, the Torah is basically concerned uh, with the neighborly economics. So if you uh, try to factor that out, what it means is that that that, uh, Israel's uh, peculiar status in the world depends on uh, practicing a just economy toward its neighbors, and mutatis mutandis, uh, that U.S. exceptionalism uh, really depends upon um, uh, the practice of uh, an economy of neighborliness. Which is has some high irony uh, in these days when we're talking about torture.
0: Oh, certainly, <laughs> certainly. Is, uh,
1: yeah, but but you know, and Dick Cheney is busy uh, justifying torture in the in the name of U.S. exceptionalism mm-hmm. and so on. Yep.
0: Well, sure. And one side says that in order to keep being America, we have to be willing to torture, and then the other side says that as soon as we start torturing, we stop being the America that's that we're e- defending.
1: That's exactly it. Yep. Yep right and i imagine they had those uh, conversations a long time ago in ancient israel already yeah well, <laughs> yep. i can imagine
0: yep. so yeah yeah yeah
1: yep. well i want to
0: i want to pose a critique of one particular chapter and i hate to do this cuz it's a chapter that i really liked when i first read it but then when i stopped and thought about it i realized i had to pose this to you it's the it's your chapter on grandparents and the main claim of that chapter seems to be that it is in the voices of the grandparents that we remember God's activity in the past. We remember to trust in God rather than in our own efforts. It's in the voices of the grandparents that we uh, learn the wisdom of the long life of faith. The chapter is called Antidote to Amnesia. I just found it in the table of contents. Yep, yep. Now, my 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 question is, in our moment in 2014, study after study shows that the grandparental generation that's around right now has a propensity to resent the young to be fearful of the alien to watch a whole mess of fox news and to do all sorts of things that this chapter says that grandparents shouldn't be doing is, is this a is this chapter an aspiration for good grandparents or how would you respond it, to that
1: i think i think it is i think it's uh a mandate to get different grandparents. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. I say, as I recall, I'm not sure, but I think I uh, based a great deal of that uh, on a little verse in Exodus 10.
0: Yes, yes, uh, indeed.
1: Where, where it says the grandparents shall tell the grandchildren about the plagues and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So obviously the, the assumption is that the grandparents are deeply rooted in the tradition, but... Uh, uh, uh clearly uh, uh the the uh the grandparents that you're citing uh will not perform that function and could not perform that function mm-hmm. so uh it's uh it doesn't it doesn't apply in that way um but it uh, you know it could uh, be a kind of a teasing reminder to people who are on their way to becoming uh, grandparents that uh you better get your head right about this stuff or you will uh or you will uh, betray your grandchildren so i think there's a lot of uh betrayal of grandchildren going on now precisely for that reason right well
0: let me ask you yeah. a question just on the on the in a church context uh there's been a lot of writing at least in my circles about a renewal of senior citizens ministries and you know sunday school programs focused on the on the elderly and i mean in my own church where i serve uh you know the adult sunday school class i teach is usually three or four college students and then a room full of grandparents how how much hope do you hold out for that kind of biblical education precisely for that generation
1: well i think it's i think it's worth doing but uh, i have the same experience you have i i go to Churches and I do this, and uh, there are no um, there are no middle generation people there mm-hmm. uh, and you know what we say is they're too busy well of course they're too busy because they they've hooked in accumulation of monopoly
2: mm-hmm. so
1: uh, uh, i I don't think that that uh, educational nurture with uh, senior citizens is a waste of time uh, but uh, I don't think uh, without an interge- intergenerational connection of some kind i don't think it holds great promise either
0: okay well within that same chapter and i want you to i want to give you a couple minutes to riff on this as well you issue a criticism uh that i've seen in some of your other books as well but i want our listeners to hear it from you a criticism of praise hymns uh take a couple minutes let our listeners hear that critique of praise as a theological category when it becomes the chief theological category
1: yeah well, uh, two, two things. First one is that, that uh, the Church for a long time has offered praise without lament, and uh, praise and lament are obviously the two big uh, practices in the Book of Psalms, and when you, when you do praise all the time without the honesty of lament, uh, I think it becomes uh, quite superficial. But my point in particular about praise hymns uh, that particular genre
2: mm-hmm. is
1: that I think they are uh, are vacuous and mindless uh, because uh, they have no narrative, uh, and uh, uh, the, the 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 ones I refer to simply kind of uh, repeat the mantras over and over and over, and uh, I I think that's uh, uh, incredibly unhelpful because uh, real praise in the biblical tradition has to do uh, with reciting with some specificity uh, the ground of faith and the ground of hope and when that specificity falls out uh, what you get is generic religion and mm-hmm. uh, I think generic religion doesn't do anything for anybody so uh, that's uh, why I think we have to re-educate people uh, that, that, there's, that, that, that our faith is not simply a Uh, goosey emotional experience, uh, but it has real uh, content to it, and uh, we need to uh, work at that content, and that content uh, needs to be the material uh, out of which we do our praise and our lament.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, speak to the folks for a moment who write the praise songs. I mean, when folks write better music than what we've got right now, and certainly I, along with you, hope that someone will, would you advise that they go exclusively to biblical narrative to a mix of biblical narrative and then tales of more recent saints oh yeah well, how would you I, I, advise I, those those
2: songwriters yeah, I, don't, I don't
1: think it i don't think it ought to be uh, uh exclusively uh, biblical uh mm-hmm. but what we ought to pay attention to is the way in which the the main uh dramatic force of the bible is continually being reperformed uh, before our very eyes in our contemporary world so then you can you can uh, do it with with a great deal of contemporaneity if you recognize that uh, our contemporary life is yet another performance of the drama of fidelity and infidelity.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, so uh, I'm I'm not a uh, not a biblicist in that sense, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, that means that the hymn writers. Uh, really have to uh, uh, face into the tradition uh, so that they have some uh, competence about uh, who the God is that's being praised and why Mm -hmm. this God is being praised.
0: Yeah, Right, and I mean, later on in your chapter from Narrative to Policy, you frame one of the most satisfying definitions of progressive revelation, which you're sort of nodding at right now that I've ever seen. And I'm going to quote it for our listeners so that they can benefit from it as well. You say the progressive revelation is, quote, contemporary interpretation and application of old tradition, close quote. Now, you emphasize in that very brief definition two poles of this construct, the contemporary and the old. Why is it so important for people of faith to hold both of those poles in tension?
1: Well, uh, if, you, if you do not keep the old, uh what you have is a, is a contemporaneity that has no uh, rootage and that probably cannot be sustained well, on the other hand if you don't have a new, uh, then, uh, the new then the old is likely to become uh, frozen and irrelevant uh, so it is, the, it is the dynamic process of uh, moving back and forth uh, between the ancient tradition and contemporary uh, circumstance uh, that is that is the hard work uh, of faith and that is the interesting work of faith mm-hmm.
2: uh,
1: so that kind of uh, interpretation takes a lot of imagination it takes a lot of courage and it takes a lot of diligence you just have to do a lot of hard work uh, and i think there are no uh, there are no shortcuts about that
0: mm-hmm. well to follow up on that how would you narrate the relationship between the progressive revelation that happens, for instance, in St. Paul's epistle to the Galatians on one hand, to something that will happen this Sunday in a homily on the other hand? Obviously, they are different phenomena, but how do they relate to each other?
1: Well, I, I, I do think that uh, if you appeal to Paul in Galatians, uh, then you're dealing with canonical literature, so that has some uh, kind of normative force for us uh, but my own inclination is to go the other way and to say that uh, uh when when we when we do it well we are in fact doing for our time and place what paul did for his time and place so mm-hmm. i would i would rather stress the parallel uh, than to stress the difference even though i recognize that uh none of us is paul and none of us is uh is doing something canonical Mm -hmm. uh, but the same dramatic process uh, is operative and uh, it's the same hard work that Paul did so Mm -hmm. that's, uh, yeah
0: Right, so in our moment you would stress the continuity between the two rather than the separation between the two why do you think that our moment needs a sense of that continuity?
1: Well, I I just think that uh, we're we're not uh, we're not that out there on our own, that we have a we have a huge uh, reservoir of uh, of resources and uh, maintenance and sustenance behind us to to trust and to fall back on, uh, and uh, I think it gives us uh, staying power uh, in a in a situation <laughs> that is enormously uh, demanding and complex.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, I, I think uh, without that. Uh, one ends up in, uh, in fatigue, and uh, the burden is just too heavy to try to uh, keep doing contemporary invention mm-hmm. all, on, all on our own.
0: All right, all right. Well, one of the, the theological moves in this book that I appreciated the most is when you talk about the <laughs> double agency that's involved in the exile of Israel— uh, your claim is that both Nebuchadnezzar and Adonai are ag- agents in Israel, Israel's exile. Now, my first thought when I read that was that you were going to go to the role of Judas in the New Testament. But you turn instead, and I found this fascinating, to the Enlightenment notion of historical progress and the forced migration so often imposed by regimes animated by this idea of progress. Uh, so say a little bit about how that constellation of ideas came together in your writing process and how you think it can be of pastoral help to believers now.
1: Well, I, I think that the, the, uh, the, the double agency is, uh, is really important because if you do not allow for uh, human agents, uh, then you wind up thinking that uh, God is a big puppeteer
2: mm-hmm. and
1: uh, will work it all out. Uh, on the other hand, uh, if you uh, have only human agents, uh, then uh, what that does is to uh, eliminate uh, the underneath claim of God's providential uh, intentionality, and, uh, uh, and I think that, that makes for very thin discourse, uh, mm-hmm. as though we are uh, everyday ultimate choosers. And I don't think we are always ultimate choosers. I think uh, uh, there are great ho- holy choices uh, that are being made uh, in with and under us all the time.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, so it's a, it's a, not an easy, not an easy thing to factor out, but uh, if you think about it in in terms of enlightenment rationality, mm-hmm. uh, then the difference is uh, is uh, pretty glaring. Uh, that uh, there is more uh, hiddenness at work uh, than modern rationality wants to allow for. Mm
0: -hmm. And yet there there is more hiddenness, I'll agree with that, and yet there seems to be a certain demonology that has arisen, especially in economic thought. I mean, people can, without blinking, blame the most cruel and inhuman treatment of their neighbors on market forces, Uh, You know, I I tell my own students that, you know, a thousand years from now, if they write our history, they'll say they stopped believing in gods, but they sure as hell believed in market forces.
1: Well, I think I think that's exactly right. Uh, And I think that's a that's a great gift that Margaret Thatcher gave us. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Just uh, it it is it is uh, it is diabolical. I do believe that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it uh, it permits. Uh. People to uh, to just avoid all responsibility. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So what do you think? Yes. I mean, you know, the text that immediately came to my mind was in the the opening, and I, I don't have a chapter number exactly in mind now, but the opening thirty or so chapters of Isaiah, where Assyria is presented as an agent that punishes the prideful among the nations, but yet becomes prideful in its own right. Is that the sort of yes. dynamic you're talking about with that double? Yes, agency? it is. It is.
1: It is. And you know I, I i would not I would not uh, press the analogy, but the analogy that comes to mind whenever I think about that is that uh, uh, the rise of uh, of the menace of uh, of uh, Islamic terrorism
2: mm-hmm.
1: being raised up to check u s pride uh, it's it's a very affrontive uh, uh, parallel. Uh, but it is a parallel that is, uh, if one wants to do it, it's relatively exact. Uh-huh. Uh, so it's very dangerous thinking, and it must have been very dangerous when Isaiah and Jeremiah talked that way. Oh, sure, <laughs> About, sure. Yeah, right, yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, and yeah, right. I mean, that that goes back to that whole notion of narrative and, you know, the prophetic task as being re-narrating the world around us. I mean... Again, what I see over and over in your books, and especially in this one, is the idea that to tell a different story is to do political work in a way that doing policy doesn't. Uh, Now, again, the, the question that I have is, you know, what role do you see the preacher having in that? What role do you see the sort of Christian citizen having in that? How do you see that playing out in the network of relationships that we exist in?
1: Well, it's all very complex, but but I think uh, uh, a minister has to uh, has to uh, give people the kinds of categories that you and I are talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a minister really has to be a teacher to uh, introduce categories that are essentially alien to uh, modern rationality. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think when you uh, come to uh, citizenship and public policy uh, I don't uh, I don't think you can uh, operate directly there with an appeal to those traditions I think that's uh, uh, I, I long ago did a did a article on the the conversation of faith behind the wall and the conversation on the wall and I think it's the conversation behind the wall in the religious community where you talk about this stuff in this way, mm-hmm. uh, but then I think when you get on the wall of public policy, uh, then you have to talk a different way about that. But you okay. have to be informed. You have to be informed by that other conversation. So I I think uh I think it's probably right that a that a Christian citizen has to be a bilingual person and has okay. to be adept at uh, at two ways of speaking. Mm-hmm. You know because uh, you can see with uh, with uh, uh, Jerry Falwell or people like that, uh, they simply want to use uh, the language of faith in the public domain.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, that didn't work out
1: very well. On the other hand, there's a lot of uh, so-called liberals uh, that are too embarrassed about faith talk that they never want to use it anywhere.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and And then the, what happens is that the uh, that the theological conversation, sort of uh, simply falls apart into the language of the New York Times.
0: Sure. uh, Sure. uh,
1: So there it goes. Yeah,
0: Yeah. Right. And I want you to talk a little bit about one particular movement within Israel's worship that could inform policy that way, and it's in that same chapter that you talk about solidarity. What is solidarity in the Old Testament, and how should that insistence within the Torah inform the lives of Christians in our own moment?
1: Well, I think that the the, the taproot of uh, solidarity is uh, the, uh, the uh, phrasing of liberation theology, God's uh, preferential option for the poor, that God uh, is in solidarity, as uh, the prophets say, with widows, orphans, sojourners, and the poor. Uh, and that means uh, that uh, God commits to them so that something is at stake for God uh, in the well-being of, uh, of uh, these vulnerable people, so there's a there's a uh, proverb in the book of Proverbs that says, "He who mistreats the poor insults their Creator."
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, so that's a kind of a, that's a kind of a solidarity, and I think that uh, that uh, that that solidarity now means that uh, uh, the believing community uh has to be uh primarily committed to the cause of the vulnerable uh precisely in a market economy uh that wants to leave them behind. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I think that at every level uh, that that kind of uh, being with and being for uh is uh elemental for the faith.
0: All right. Well, I want to move to your chapter called Testimony, and you set forth a strong and again satisfying vision of testimony as a specifically counter-establishment utterance. Uh, Now, when you say counter-establishment in that political context, what is it that makes testimony counter-establishment? Is it the vocabulary? Is it the overarching narrative? What is it that makes testimony testimony, and what makes that such a crucial theological category?
1: I think I made that argument, particularly out of uh, Second Isaiah,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, and uh, what I was thinking is that that the poetry of Second Isaiah is countercultural uh, to the empire of Babylon and to the Jews who had colluded with Babylon. And the thought occurred to me that uh, if you are if you agree with uh, uh, the establishment domain. You don't have to bear witness. It's a given. It's already there.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So the only reason for bearing testimony is that you have something else to say that calls into question uh, the assumed norms. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so I think that's pretty much... Uh, and I think it's the same in the New Testament uh, when, when the early apostles in the book of Acts, when they testify to the Resurrection uh they are uh, really uh, calling into question uh, the domain of Rome because regularly they get called before the uh, authorities of Rome for their uh, for their testimony uh, to an alternative so uh that, that's the ground on which I was thinking uh, that uh, you you don't really uh, uh assume uh, a posture of being a witness uh, unless uh you are advocating uh, a truth that does not enjoy a common currency. Right. Let me
0: ask you this, and I, and I might be pressing your metaphor too far now that I heard that account. Uh, what would you say about a reading of your notion of testimony that says that the rhetoric of testimony puts the people who are currently the highest power that is visible into an imagined courtroom in which they are the defendant?
1: Well, I think that's exactly right. I just got a, some kind of an email somebody sent me this morning imagining the uh, trial of uh, of um, Dick Cheney as a war crime or criminal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that was exactly that kind of an act of imagination
2: mm-hmm. um,
1: uh, in which uh, uh, we are invited to, to uh, see the whole thing differently uh, if you set it up according to that kind of a metaphor.
0: Right, yeah. but again, and yeah. going back to some things we talked about earlier, to make that kind of move assumes that the nations are already under the sovereignty of Adonai, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob.
1: That's correct. That's and that right.
0: It is a righteous thing to bring those people into a court if they commit a crime.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And obviously, that is the assumption of of those traditions. Exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right.
0: Well, another one of your favorite words in this book that I again I haven't seen as much in your other books. Uh, is the word neighborhood, and I like that a great deal because I, I tend to be a sort of, you know, Richard Weaver-style conservative when I am a conservative. Uh, what place do you think does the small human-sized community have in a world dominated by global capital and global military forces and global digital communication networks?
1: Well, I think, uh, I, th- I think in the long run, our futures are all local. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am i am you are right that is a that is a, a, a an evolution in my own thinking i'm very much informed now by my friend Peter block who is a, a community advocate who uh, simply insists always on the local the local the local and uh, i've come around very much to to that um, though you obviously can um, can extrapolate uh, the notion of neighbor and neighborhood to to much bigger uh, national communities as well, mm-hmm. uh, but I think the, the word intrinsically carries something uh, local about it. And uh, I'm, I'm recently informed by uh, what is called asset-based community organizing, which believes that if you can properly organize a community, every community has all of the assets it needs hmm. uh, to maintain its life, and uh, uh, that, that's a big stretch for me to think that way uh but i I am increasingly um persuaded in that direction
0: well and i hate to tell you this and i'm going to tweak your nose a little bit here but there is a book that uh argues that very thing about human communities it's a it's called republic by plato
1: (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
2: except
1: that uh, plato did stratify it all didn't he
0: well, he did, he did. But he also said yeah. that, you know, you've got the resources there, but we won't dwell yep, on that. Yep. We won't dwell yep, on that. Right. I, just, <laughs> I just had to throw that little joke in there. Um, good, good. <laughs> well, yep. I want to hear you reflect upon the last sentence in the book on page 386. It could be otherwise. What has, stole, what has stolen so many Christians will to speak and to imagine otherwise? And how might a faithful engagement with the Bible in liturgy and elsewhere Lend some energy to that otherwise
1: Well I think uh, The the uh, the Tradition we've been talking about The, prof- the, the prophets, the psalms
2: mm-hmm. uh,
1: The apostles In the book of Acts They are all bearing witness to otherwise uh, that, that the way the world Is presently organized And arranged uh, Is not the way it has to be And it's not the way it's going to be um, and, and that the summons of this tradition uh, is to be about the business of uh, receiving uh, that otherwise, that alternative uh, power arrangement. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's, uh, that catches uh, the big push of the whole tradition, I think.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep. yep. Well, very good. Well, I have been at the wheel for most of today's conversation, so in a spirit of hospitality, I want to offer you the last word. What about your book, about the Bible, or about anything else would you like to say that we haven't spent enough time on yet?
1: Well, I might, I might uh, comment on uh, the, the uh, uh, title, uh, the uh, uh, Axes, uh, which is a quote from Kafka
2: mm-hmm. uh,
1: that breaks up the frozen ideas of our mind, uh, and I think that's probably right, so I am uh, committed to the proposition uh, that the biblical tradition is always uh, calling into question our best certitudes. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, I think that our contemporary society in the United States now is uh, is pathological for all to see, and it makes this tradition really urgent uh, as a place to stand. Uh, from which to do uh, critique and from which to work as an alternative. Uh, so I, I think it is uh, really a, a kind of a poignant uh, resource and summons for us uh, right now, uh, given what we've got on our plate in the United States. Oh, thank you. Okay. Well,
0: thank you, Dr. Brueggemann, for coming on the show.
1: Well, it's good to talk to you. Thank you. Yes.
0: And I want to thank our listeners for tuning in. This is Christian Humanist Profiles, and it's part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Zach Schmidt is our intern. Kristen Philippik is our press liaison. And this is Nathan Gilmore for Christian Humanist Profiles saying, Go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord.